Hi, this is James Rousseau, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of The Coiling Solution, where we look to empower you through awareness and actionable insights. You know, we all know better, but we know success doesn't happen overnight. However, when we see certain people in the limelight, we often lose sight of that. We tend to look at the tip of the iceberg. This episode is all about going beneath the surface. Jillian Zoe Siegel is the author of Getting There, a book of mentors, as well as New York characters. She received a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Michigan and a law degree from the Benjamin Cardoza School of Law. She lives in Manhattan and is also a photographer. During this episode, we dive into her latest book, Getting There, where she's interviewed some of the best of the best. They share their secrets, they share their challenges, their failures, and ultimately how they achieve success. So as always, sit back and buckle up as we're about to link up with Jillian Zoe Siegel. Jillian, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to The Core Link Solution. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So where are you at today, Jillian? I'm in New York. And of course. And how are things in New York City? I love it here. <laughs> so, you know, as I looked into this book, I was amazed for a couple of reasons. One, the... I guess the tenacity it would take to get to some of the people you talk to in this book. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So, so maybe let's start here. I know you've done tons of interviews, both through publishing both of the books. Maybe let's start with this. And this is probably hard, but let's start with one thing that people probably don't know about you. They're probably listening to the podcast now that think they know you fairly well. What's one thing you could share that folks may not know about Jillian? My daughter and I are obsessed with our dog. What kind of dog? <laughs> we have little mini golden doodle, which is a golden retriever mixed with a poodle. And oh, she's barking right now. And, um, I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and she's little and she doesn't shed. That's why we had to get that kind. And she's adorable and fun. Gotcha. Gotcha. So now you've written two books. Uh, the latest book, Getting There, obviously is still uh, doing extremely well. What are some of the things you're most excited about in your journey? As a matter of fact, maybe you could talk a little bit about your journey and then answer the, the first question. Some of the things you're most excited about that you're doing today. My journey is a winding path. I started out, I went to law school and then I worked in, in a family business for a little while. And then I decided that I wanted to pursue photography and that led to my first book, which was mainly New York characters, which was mainly a vehicle for my photography. And after that, I thought, well, I can do books. And then I had the idea for my next book, which was more about the text of the book. But I did also photograph each of the subjects. And the next book is why I'm here today, getting there, a book of mentors. And basically, I used to look at people and wonder what makes her such a big success and, and other people aren't? Mm -hmm. Or how did he figure his career path out? And they all make it look so easy. And, and was it? And what can, you know, and so I thought, you know, if I make a book out of this, it's a good excuse to meet all these people and sit down and ask them all these questions and try to get to the bottom of this. So that's what I did. And now I am working on an entrepreneurial venture, which is too early to talk about, but it's inspired by my book. So one thing leads to another. You know, it's like my career is a winding path, but it all sort of links together. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. And so what have been some of those defining moments as you to your point of uh, a winding path? I, I love that terminology. I often say it's the tapestry. What have been some of those defining moments through your winding path as you think about it? I guess the, the way that I first got into photography was that I stopped and thought, what do I really love? You know, and I want to do something with that. So that's how I sort of went in the photography direction. And the other thing through my book, through getting there, I learned that careers can have many chapters and that you shouldn't really let yourself get pigeonholed. And a lot of times just because I was doing photography doesn't mean that I can, couldn't do a book that's more a career book, a business book. You know, that's what I ended up doing, a business book. And I ended up writing articles for Forbes and Fortune and everything. And I think that you shouldn't limit yourself and box yourself in. People, people can mm. do a variety of things. And, and it's, once you get that in your mind, it's liberating. And, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is such a big success with Goop. And I think when she right. started that, a lot of people were sort of negative about, well, she's an actress. You know, everyone wants to pigeonhole everybody else and sort of keep them... Mm in a neat box but we're not we're not all we don't live in neat boxes that's right that's right you know one of the things that struck me about this when i was looking at this in your book is the magnitude of the some of the people that you interview in your book and just so folks understand you know we'll never get a chance to cover in this podcast all the people that Jillian was able to talk to. But let me just run down some of the names so you get a sense of the magnitude. So everyone from the likes of a Warren Buffett to Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, to Sarah Blakely, the creative Spanx, to Anderson Cooper, who obviously is on CNN and 60 Minutes, if I remember correctly. Folks like uh, Jim Koch, Ian Schrader, Jillian Michaels, uh, and the list goes on and on, 30 people. Talk about, you know, how do you approach such a daunting task of getting in front of those 30 people? How do you how did you even approach that? That was the hardest part. It took me five years to finish this book. And the hardest part was chasing these celebrities and legends and business in the business world. And basically, when I put my mind to something, I sort of get frustrated if it doesn't happen and I'll keep trying to make it happen. So it was a lot of polite persistence. Almost everyone who ended up being in the book rejected me at first, but I sort of didn't let that deter me. And actually, if you Google me, you can find articles on meeting people because so many people ask me, how did you do it? That I even wrote a whole article. Maybe you could put a link to that with the podcast. Absolutely. Happy to. Absolutely. They're in Fortune magazine. My networking tip. Absolutely. Yeah, basically, I give a lot of little tips that I'd never really thought of. It was all sort of second nature. And then when so many people asked me, you know, it's almost like if someone with friends got asked, how do you make friends? That person probably didn't have a recipe. They just go about their their business naturally. But if you get asked so many times, you might think, hmm, you know, here here are some rules to live by that work. Yeah. 
That's uh, incredible. So, you know, and, and, you know, when you went into this, you know, overcoming all those objections, right, as we say, <laughs> when you've been in sales, et cetera, what was your background prior? Did you, did you have a prior sales background or anything like that that kind of prepared you for dealing with all those objections and getting past gatekeepers and such? You know, I, well, I had done my first book, which was called New York Characters, and I had to ask people about that. And it was hard to even get that book published. You know, I got rejected a lot. And there was a time also one summer while I was in law school where I worked as a real estate broker. And that really, that's a sales job. So you have to keep your stamina up. And I was renting apartments in New York City. And that taught me a lot because, well, actually, one of the most surprising things that I learned in putting getting there together was how many of my subjects credited early jobs in sales with giving them the tools they needed for their ultimate success. And selling is just great because number one, it gets you over being deterred by rejection because when you're selling stuff, you don't sell to every single person you try to sell to. People walk away, they say no, but you have to just get over the fear of failure and Try again if you want to make a sale. And the other thing that that it's good for is your communication skills. And no matter what you do in business, communication skills are really important. Warren Buffett talks about this in his Getting There essay. And he says no matter what you do, you're trying to get people to follow you, to follow your ideas. You know, it's obvious how you're doing that if you're trying to sell somebody on something. But even if you're an artist, you're trying to get explain your art or get people to buy your art. And if you're the leader of a big company, you're trying to get people to follow you in business. So whatever it is, I could right. tell his story, how he honed his communication skills. Would you like me to tell that or? Absolutely. Please. Okay. So please share up that. until the age of 20, Warren Buffett was so afraid of speaking in public the, the thought of it would literally make him throw up and he arranged his life so that he never found himself in front of a crowd. Like he would not take a class if part of it had to do with making a presentation. And he knew that he couldn't go too far in life with this handicap. So one day he forced himself to sign up for this Dale Carnegie public speaking course. And If you go to his office, which is where I interviewed him and photographed him, he does not have his college diploma or his business school diploma on the wall, but he does have framed this one certificate from the Dale Carnegie public speaking course, this $100 class he took, framed and up on the wall because it changed his life. And he now, he's speaks in front of crowds. I go to his annual shareholders meeting every year and he's standing there in front of 40,000 people. He actually is sitting there. He sits for hours fielding questions and speaking in public. So it's amazing. That's that's in his mind. That's transformation for him. Absolutely. I think that that's like was the biggest game changer for him. That's awesome. You know, one of the other things that struck me is how you conducted these interviews, right? So a lot of times when people conduct interviews, they'll send literally, I mean, some journalists will send it the questions in an email Mm -hmm. format. 
so people can write back the answers or have their publicists write the answers, right? Or uh, people are dictated and send it back on uh, some audio form. You sat down with folks, correct? Yes, I did. And then secondarily, uh, a lot of times when photos and such are used, they have, again, photos used from their quote unquote gallery of photos that they already have in, you know, their, their preferred bio shot, et cetera. My understanding is you also took your own photos personally. I did. I did. And I think the reason behind that with the interviews is if you are sitting with the person and asking questions. You get a lot more control because if they answer some a question and they don't answer it in enough depth or it's confusing or something, you're, you're right there. You could say, what do you mean by that? Or how did that make you feel? Or that, you know, you can ask follow-up questions. And if you just send your questions in, you give up a lot of control. You don't know what they're going to give back. Right. And as for the photos, photography is a passion of mine and I specialize in portraiture. So I didn't want to have other people taking the pictures. I wanted to do it. And and once again, you get more control that way. Yeah. I mean, but the um, to your point of persisting and pushing past the initial rejections, the ability to have to, to negotiate to be in the room for the interview <laughs> takes that much more persistence and tenacity. So uh, kudos to you. Thank you. So when you think about. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. When you think about uh, the interviews conducted and so much advice in that book that you have to, I mean, some of the things that people said, you know, I just had to sit back and think about, and I don't know if you know this, but I've been sending out uh, what I call the success thought of the day since January of 2000, right? So I'm 19 years in of sending that out every weekday. I took several out of this, right? I mean, literally probably 15 or so Mm -hmm. um, nuggets from this to add to that collection of mine. What are three or four, and I feel unfair even asking you that, but what are three or four pieces of advice that really stuck with you that you walked away from like, you know, wow, these are, these are really significant. Okay. From my book, three or four, three or four, God, you know, this is like asking someone to pick their favorite child because I love so many, but if you gave me more time to think about this, I might come up with a different one, but I'm just going to come up with some of the ones that, that are on the top of my head. So number one, Warren Buffett, who, as you could tell, I'm a huge fan of his, but he gave this piece of advice that doesn't actually come from him. He passed it along. It it was the best piece of advice he's ever gotten from somebody else, which was this. You can always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow. (laughs) And what does that mean? It's a lesson on controlling your temper because A lot of times people spout off in a moment of anger and especially in this day and age, once it's out there, you can't take it back. Like if you send an angry email or text or tweet or whatever, it's out there. You can't take it back. So he recommends that you sit on it for a day or so. If you still feel the same way tomorrow, let that person know that they should go to hell then. But I think that a lot of times you might change your response if you let yourself cool down. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's one of my favorites. And then, of course, there's something a lot of people touch on this theme, but Kathy Ireland says it really succinctly. She says, if you never fail, you're not trying hard enough. Yes. And 
that is just like an amazing way to put it. And it, and it really is an easy way to understand because a lot of people try and do something and fail. And then they think it's a sign they shouldn't do it or they feel bad or whatever it is. They get knocked off course. If you can see failure as just part of the process, then the next time you fail, like you try to get a client, whatever it is, and you get rejected. If you say, this means I'm doing my job, I'm doing a good job, and I'm going to keep going. And and sometimes you learn from your mistakes and you move in a different direction a little bit, but I think giving up is the biggest pitfall. Uh, let me see. I think that a great lesson comes from a, a couple of people, but a lot of my getting there subjects know that just because something has been done one way for years mm. doesn't mean that it's the right way or that another way won't work. Right. And that's how innovation happens. So I could use the scientist as an example. His name is J. Craig Venter mm-hmm. in the book. And he was working on sequencing the human genome. And he was working for the government, for the National Endowment, the NIH, I guess, National Endowment of Health, I think. Is that what it stands for? I don't know. But National Institute of health because endowment has an E. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) he was working and they were going to take nine years to do this to sequence the human genome. And he said, I have a way that I think we could do it in a year. And no one wanted to follow him and everyone criticized his way and viciously they attacked it. And in the end, he quit his job. He went off, he started his own company. It worked. And now Everybody uses method, all the prior critics. And I feel like that happens all the time in business. Something new and different is a threat. I mean, this is embarrassing to admit, but I remember years ago when email was just starting, I thought, why would I ever send someone an email if I could just pick up the phone and call them? Right. (laughs) And anyway, if something's unfamiliar, it's easy for people to to say it won't work or say they won't use it. And next thing you know, we're all, we're all doing what we thought we wouldn't do. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, those are great. I think I've gone on enough. Those yeah. are great picks. <laughs> I mean, it was so hard. I mean, like I said, I knew it was an unfair question, but I had to ask anyway to see what, uh, what came for you top of mind. There's some that jumped out for me that I love to, to ask you about and see how they struck you when they said it to you. What one was, again, was Warren Buffett. And I'm just such a Warren Buffett fan, but one he said, which, me uh, too. you know, what's on your inner scorecard is more important than what's on the outer scorecard. And I used that as a, a success thought of the day earlier this week. I just thought that was just so uh, important. And, and again, a lot of times people say we kind of know, but it's the way they say mm-hmm. it uh, and who it comes exactly. from sometimes. Exactly, it hits you. Yeah, that just hits you. And it's like, yeah, what's what's coming from your inside, particularly in this day and environment where we're inundated with information and ways we should think about ourselves, or supposed mirrors that people are putting up in front of us to look in, right? That uh, to reshape ourselves or, or uh, you know judge ourselves by. That was just so potent to me. Uh, that way. yeah, he says he learned that from his father, and and basically a lot of times if all people care about is how things look to others, they end up 
leading sort of an empty life. And Warren Buffett is just amazing um, because he obviously is interested in making a profit. That's what he excels at and that's what he does. And on account of that, so many of his investors and all of his shareholders have made a profit and owe so much to him. But he also has old friends and leads a really fulfilling life. Like he has all of the the things that anyone would hope for on their deathbed, as far as the love and admiration of the people who he wants the true love and admiration from, like his friends and family. Well, listen, I mean, one of his quotes, right, that was so powerful to me, too, was, you have lived a successful life if as you grow older, the people you hope love you actually do. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. wow. Wow. And he right? says he knows, <laughs> yeah, he knows a lot of people who have like hospital wings named after them and buildings in their name because they donated the money. But right. but he doesn't think that they have like a full life because yeah. because they don't have people might want to be around them because their money. Right. But just because of that. Yeah. Now, another one I liked was, and no surprise to anyone who's listened to the Quilling Solution for any bit of time or know me, because I'm a passion fan and I believe wholeheartedly in chasing your passion. But Anderson Cooper's pearls, he says anyone who he gives advice to, he tells them these three steps are key. Step number one, figure out what gets your adrenaline going. Step number two, yeah. figure out a way to make a career out of your passion. Right. Figure out a way to make a career out of passion. Step number three, outwork everyone around you. Come in earlier, leave later and volunteer for everything others don't want to do. And then he adds this piece to it that I thought was so, so funny. He said, look, you'll know it's your passion for real when you're more interested in doing that than going out for a drink with your friends. Then, you know, you found your bliss. And it sounds yeah. funny, but there's some truth to that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing behind that is that nothing is easy. If it was so easy, everyone would be doing it. It's just, so no matter what career you pick, if you want to be a big success, it's going to be hard. There's competition out there. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, then it gives you like the fuel to jump the inevitable hurdles that will be in your way. Yeah. Otherwise, you you might do okay at what you're doing, but you're not going to really be a huge success if you don't if you don't enjoy it. You know, and and during the you know as he told his story, you know, again, you don't appreciate some of these things. He talked about think I forget what network he was at, but he was there almost like five years, got fired, then he was being sent on these international assignments, sleeping in rooms with cockroaches and you know all kind of pests i mean just getting the crummiest assignments i think in one case he said he got fired and it was that type of firing you find out by watching a broadcast or something like that right like it was the worst way to find out yeah he got fired right yeah <laughs> and all that because he was locked on his passion like he knew that he knew that he knew this is where he wanted to be he didn't get derailed by being right. tired he didn't say all right that means i should Give up. He just was like, all right, let me find my way somewhere else. And that's like, that's the biggest key to success is resilience. And it's easier to be resilient and and keep going if you are passionate about what you do. How did it feel in a room as he told that story? He's like, um, 
he's a very serious and soulful person. So I really enjoyed meeting him and he just seems very wise and he is very wise. Gotcha. You know, the other one, and I would expect her to say this, uh, Sarah Blakely, the creative Spanx, you know, one of her quotes was, it's a good, a, a good idea is just a starting point. Everybody has them all day long. Everybody has a multi-million dollar idea inside. Let me repeat that. Everybody has a multi-million idea inside. However, you got to get it done. It's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Yes. Was she like almost coming across the table at you as she was saying that? (laughs) (laughs) She's amazing. She gets something in her mind and she makes it happen. And a lot of people would come up to her and say, I was cutting the the legs off of my pantyhose. I should have been the Spanx girl and whatever. That was my idea. Okay, well, you had the idea in your head, but if you're not going to make it happen, then... Why should you be the Spanx person? The the person who actually makes it happen should be. And it was not easy for her to launch her business. She had to drive around and actually show up at these hosiery mills and convince someone to even make a prototype of Spanx for her. And she's just a hustler. She's like works and works and works. And she's one of the people who credits an early job in sales for giving her the skills she needed for her ultimate success. She worked, she spent eight years selling fax machines door to door. So that's where she got her stamina. Got it. And do I remember, did I remember correctly? Has she gone to law school as well? Am I confusing her with someone else? She wanted to, She wanted to, but she did so badly on the standardized test that you have to take okay. to get in the LSAT that she just decided, you know what? I'm going to drive to Disney and get a job. Like as a character right, right. in the parade. So <laughs> anyway, she 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 wanted to be the chipmunk. They said you have to work here for a few months before doing that, and so she ended up loading rides at Epcot Center. She's a great story. It's great. So now there's a person who I did not know at all before reading this book. Actually, several I didn't. Her story jumped out to mm-hmm. me. Uh, Marina Abramovic. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, I'm saying her name correctly. You are. And if I remember her story correctly, she was raised in um, Russia, Russia or one of those countries and abused family within an abused family. So suffered through a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse, etc. but knew she wanted to be an artist and unrelentingly held on to that. And one of the things she said, I, there was a lot of wisdom in it, uh, but I just had to keep thinking about it. She said, you know, if you don't sell anything it doesn't mean that you're a bad artist. It could be that you produce some bad art, but sometimes it could be your work is ahead of society. Mm-hmm. It's true. But um, that is, that can sometimes, you know, I can't name the names of the artists, but I feel like if I Googled artists who didn't become successful till after they died, there'd be these huge names. Like I think Van Gogh might've been one of them who's, one of the most successful artists. So sometimes people have an idea or an invention and the rest of the world isn't ready for it yet. Because remember, like people are resistant to change and trends come and go. And really like when she started, she was mainly a performance artist 
and I feel like she sort of made the category. Like mm. it wasn't like there were very many famous performance artists before her. Right. Right. You know, and, and interestingly enough, you know, one of the things she also said was, you know, when people come to her for advice or uh, mentorship uh, and if they express what they want to do in terms of and I may be getting this incorrectly in terms of fame or fortune, she turns them away. In her mind, artistry is about artistry and not fame and fortune could be a beneficial outcome. It could, but it, it's a could be. Right. It's, it's about the art itself. Right. And so it, it kind of goes back to her, her the first the first quote. Right. Uh, it's not about the cell. It's about getting the art done and, and perfecting the art. So and it goes back to passion. I think that a lot of artists say something along the lines of like none, nothing is easy. You know, no, like being an artist isn't easy. It's not easy to make money as an artist. And so you should only do this if it's like. In your mind, you just can't picture doing anything else. You love it so much that you that it doesn't feel like work because now it's not easy. Once again, nothing is easy. Right. And even Jeff Koons, who's in in the book, who's one of the most successful artists in the entire world, like his art sells for millions and millions of dollars, and he spent nine years. It, it took him nine years before he could give up having a second job, before he could even support mm. himself as an artist. Mm. So even for the most successful people in the entire history of the world, it wasn't easy. It's not like people understood their talent right away. Yeah, yeah. Tom Scott, uh, the uh, co-founder of Nantucket Nectars, uh, I like one of the things he said, and, and I know I'm guilty of one of the things he said. He said, because I didn't know what was coming around the corner, I didn't live around the corner. I lived in whatever was right in front of me at that moment. If you start off focusing on everything, you will eventually have to figure out. And all the problems you will eventually uh, have to do and uh, deal with, it can be overwhelming and even debilitating. So he's talking like, you know, starting a new business or a new venture, et cetera. Right. You, you've got to take it piece by piece, bit by bit, get things done, which I thought was really, really good sound advice. Yes, absolutely. I think that a lot of times someone, another person, Ian Schrager, says this. Ian Schrager is in, in the book and he's he became famous because he started Studio 54 then he went to prison and then he re was able to reinvent himself in the real estate world as like a hotel, a hotelier, I guess that's how it's pronounced. But, um, mm -hmm. and he says that he gives this advice to his daughter, like just if there's like a whole mountain of stuff to do and it seems overwhelming, you just have to do one thing at a time and get it done. That's the only way. So sometimes life seems over. Be like you let your partner are starting a business and you start thinking, well, I'm going to need this and that and distribution and, and like start like planning ahead for when it's a huge billion dollar company. You're just never going to start the business. Right. So just don't look too far ahead and take put one foot in front of the other sometimes. I mean, you obviously have to look far ahead in some respects because you don't want to go down a road that makes no sense. But Absolutely. The, the one last one that uh, jumped out to me was Jim Koch. 
you know, and he he talked about passion, so on and so forth. And if I remember correctly, again, another one were tapestry, right? Started one place and came back over and finally got to uh, beer. But he said, you know, never take your eye off the quality of the product. And and even though they've grown to be a, a, a very large uh, company, obviously, he says he still tastes every batch of the product. Mm-hmm. He personally tastes every batch of the product. I wonder how his liver's doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He says that um, that's the most important thing is quality. And your reputation is on the line for that. So, yeah. And, you know, the secondary thing he said was, and this latches to his quality statement is the quality of the culture and the people in the company. He said they don't hire anyone unless it will increase the average inside the company. So literally, as they look to fill a position and they speak to candidates, they ask themselves, will is this person higher than the average of the company today? Yeah. Why, why bring us down with each hire? Why not increase the quality of the people who are working here with each new hire? Because you have a chance to hire a new person, make them someone who will move the company in the right direction. Yep. And I think he said sometimes that means some jobs take a little longer to fill. I think yep. one job took eight, 18 months. He said, but it, look, it's a conscious decision. That's who we are. That's who we want to be. So yeah. um, now the awesome learnings within this book. So so, so now to your earlier point, uh, as we kind of wrap up, you talked about, I love the phrase you use again, uh, you know, one of your learnings you said was a careers, a, a number of chapters. How do you think about your next chapter? Well, I'm working on something now and um, it's an entrepreneurial idea and I am 100% inspired by all of these ideas, uh, you know, that we've been talking about all of these lessons um, and all the people who I got to meet and what I'm doing, which I can't talk about, but it's, it's not easy. <laughs> and I get inspiration by remembering all the lessons from this book. And, and I just really want to keep putting one foot in front of the other and make it happen. So Absolutely. I'm living, I'm living the, the theories of this book right now. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I probably know the answer to this question, but I'm compelled to ask it anyway. How do you sharpen your saw? What do you do for your own personal development? I guess for my own personal development, I am obsessed with watching documentaries. Mm. So I, it's like, I like to keep learning. And there's people like Warren Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger, and they talk about reading, reading, reading. And I do like to read, but I think, Another tool for reading is documentaries, and I really enjoy it because I kill two birds with one stone because I usually watch them while I'm exercising. So I feel like I'm learning and exercising, and it's like a three-dimensional book watching a documentary. You learn something. You know, usually whoever makes a documentary was passionate about the subject matter, so... I don't know. I I haven't seen one that I've gotten nothing out of. Some are better than others, and I try to watch the good ones. But like, I'm with you. I'm a I'm a documentary buff myself. I I love watching documentaries. Between Netflix, PBS, uh, etc., there there are plenty out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so last question, and, and not from a perspective of regrets, just from a perspective of continual learning. If you had a chance 
to go back and visit with 20-year-old Jillian Zoe Siegel, what would you tell her? I would tell her, I would tell her to think about what she loves and, and use that as the starting point to figure a career path out. And I would tell her that you don't need to know the end goal right away. You can figure it out as you go along. Um, and I think sometimes mm. when people are too rigid, they miss out on opportunities. The world keeps changing and you don't know what you're going to see and what you should take advantage of. So don't be too rigid. And, and that sometimes it won't happen overnight. So be a little patient when you're in the learning phase. Like if you want to start, this is just an example. I didn't want to do this, but if you want to start a restaurant, you should start by working in a restaurant and going around, you know, seeing what it's, what it's like. Cause you can't be the boss of something before you know what it's about on the ground floor. Right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Great advice. Well, listen, um, first and foremost, uh, congrats on the book and uh, much continued success to you. For all the folks listening, uh, we will put the links uh, in the show notes as well as the website, uh, both to the book as well as the uh, link she mentioned earlier um, around some of the lessons. Uh, there was a lesson point in there. We'll make sure we have those links available to you. Thank you so much, uh, Jillian Zoe Siegel, for being with us today. We appreciate you. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me, and it was fun talking to you. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Coiling Solution. You are informed, you are empowered, and can now be accountable. A few takeaways for me from this episode. Number one, as Jillian talked about, careers have many chapters. Don't let yourself be pigeonholed. You can explore and do things in your chapters in the future. Number two, passion. Find what you love and do it with quality. As Sarah Blakely said, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And I love Jim Koch's example. Doing it with quality, he still tastes and tests every new batch of beer. Number three, persist with tenacity. Jillian talked about the fact that when she started this journey to complete this book, everyone initially told her no. Yet she managed over time to get in every room with all of those 30 people to complete those interviews and even take the picture. It took her five years to get it completed though. So you have to stick with things to see those things you love get done and actually happen. So those are my three takeaways. I'm sure you have others. Share them with me. Further, if you find a podcast to be of value, please subscribe, rate, and review. As you listen to these podcasts, you may have some questions. Here's some things that are new. I'm here to support you. You can go to the website at thecorelinksolution.com and right below the show notes, you'll see a comment section. Ask your questions, share challenges you face in the areas that we cover, and you can even tell me about guests you'd love to hear from in the future. Alternatively, you can do the same through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Corelink Solution. Thanks so much for linking up, and I'll see you next episode. Be informed, be empowered, be accountable.